Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ's, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. All right, Tony's going to be preaching for us today. I'm going to pray for him, and then we'll hear the preaching of God's word. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for my brother Tony. Thank you for his giftings once again. Uh, we just ask that uh, what he speaks would be the truth of your word, and everything else would, would not be spoken, Lord. Ultimately, may you be glorified today through your word, and may we be encouraged. Uh, may the gospel ring true in our ears, and may we leave this place uh, just invigorated for you and filled with your spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Hey, everybody. Um, if I'd have known there was going to be Tetris last night, I would have let, let my homework slip. Um, before, I, before I jump into the passage, um, I just kind of wanted to, to say a couple things. Um, uh, many of you know that a, about a week ago, my dad was diagnosed um, with really bad cancer. And, um, and I've had a rough couple of weeks. It's uh, weighed on me pretty heavily. I, I lost my mom. Um, I lost my mom about eight years ago. And so I'm coming up on, um, you know, looking at traveling home in, to Indiana and, and no parents being there. And so it's kind of, it's been real heavy. And um, there's just been a lot on our plate. And so I wanted to thank you guys for praying for me and my family and my dad. And for those of you who have watched our kids while we've tried to figure out <laughs> arrangements and, and stuff, I just want to say thank you for that as well. Um, and I, I want you guys to know that as I, as I go and I visit my family in Indiana and as I struggle with family situations there, I'm reminded more and more how important this family is to me. Um, you guys are truly not just my friends, but my brothers and sisters, and um, I have received more comfort from you guys in the last couple of weeks than than I've received, you know, pretty much pretty much anywhere. Um, I I love my I love my uh, brothers and sisters in in Indiana, my blood brothers and sisters in Indiana, but whenever you're six hours away, you know. Facebook conversations are cold comfort, and um, I just so I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you guys. And um, if I make any weird facial expressions in this very touchy sermon um, subject, please know that it's it's probably related to other stuff, and don't take that as as any coldness or callousness towards the subject that we're going to look at. Um, so all that being said, if you just join me, I want to pray one more time. Heavenly Father, um, I just, I, I really want to praise you for being my, my father. 
um, our earthly fathers pass away, but you never do. You are always there and you're always faithful and you're always good. Lord, I want to thank you for this family, this church family that you've given to me and that you've given um, to all of us here. And just ask that as we continue to pursue you in our, in our own individual lives and together as a congregation, that you would empower us um, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, that we would all grow spiritually, that we would come to know you more. As we dig into this passage and as we go over some difficult concepts today, I ask that you would open our hearts Help us to see past the fog of imperfect um, situations in the world um, to you, a God who loves us and is merciful to us and wants us to show mercy towards one another. Lord, again, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first off, um, let's go ahead and put the... Uh, the passage that we just read back up on the board, if that'd be okay, Derek. I want to start off by pointing something out. You see the word bond servants there? That's in your uh, English Standard Translation. The word means slaves. Okay? Slaves obey your masters. Slaves is not a word that we like to use or think about as Americans. I'd ask you to raise your hands and say, you know, do you know why that is? But I think we all understand that the history of slavery in our country has caused so many deep wounds that whenever American translators got together to translate this passage, they didn't want to use the word. And so the passage we're going to be talking about today has at its center the concept of slavery. And rather than skirting around the issue or ignoring the problems that we have in our country that have been birthed out of the sins that our ancestors committed, We want to go right through. So as I read this passage, and as you see it on the board, notice I'm going to say the word slave. I'm not going to say the word bondservant. Um, at the same time, I want to acknowledge that the, that the heart here that the translators had to use the word bondservant instead of slave was not malicious. It wasn't political. The truth is, is that American slavery and the horrors that it represented is, is really not an accurate picture of what slavery as an institution was in first century Rome when this passage was written. Do you, under, do you understand that? And so if we have in our mind the picture of an, an African stolen out of their homeland, forced to work in a cotton field, 
as we, as we read this passage, we will have probably an inaccurate view. And so before we get into the details of the scriptures, I want to just do a brief review on what slavery looked like in the first century. The first thing that I want to say is that slavery in the first century was truly slavery. Um, If you pick up commentaries on this passage, you will run into often um, writers attempting to soften what slavery is because they're uncomfortable that it's in the Bible at all. Does that make sense? And so they'll, they'll look at this thing, this thing of slavery and they'll say, it wasn't really slavery. But I'm telling you, if you review the historical materials, if you go back and actually read Roman historians who describe what slavery was, slaves in first century Rome were viewed as property by their owners. Do you understand? They weren't just viewed as employees or servants. They were viewed as property. And while it might be easier for me and I could present a more lighthearted message by getting up here and trying to soften, like others, the image of what slavery was in the first century, the truth is is that slavery in the first century was slavery. People were bought and sold and traded in first century Rome. So it was slavery, truly slavery. But, and this is important, slavery in first century Rome greatly varied. It wasn't this homogenous institution where every slave looked and acted the same. Some slaves were treated like family. And other slaves were treated like dirt. And so there was a range. It also, unlike American slavery, was not ethnic. Do you get what I'm saying? In American slavery, if you were walking in the South, you could tell who the slaves were, right? Because they were all black. If you saw a poor white person walking down the street, dressed in similar clothes to a black person, you had value for the white person and not the black person, most likely. There was an ethnic dimension to American slavery that was ugly and evil. While slavery in first century Rome was true slavery, it was not based on any kind of ethnic identity. There were Greek slaves and Jewish slaves and African slaves and European slaves. There were slaves of every type and color and build. The population of slaves in the first century Roman world looked just like in their outward appearance, normal, everyday citizens. Uh, In fact, uh, 
the Roman Senate debated, since slaves aren't as valuable as full citizens or as other commoners, we should figure out a way to identify them so that whenever we're walking through the streets, we don't accidentally show one the courtesy that they don't deserve. And so there was this debate about whether they should make slaves wear special clothes, you know, some kind of special garb to identify them. But, but the truth was is that in Roman cities, 30 to 40% of the population were slaves. And, and the Romans were afraid that if they all started realizing how many of them there were in the town, that they might rebel. And so they just left it as is. And so again, slavery in the first century was not ethnic. Also, slavery in the first century did not just mean uneducated, brute labor. The white southerners who imported African slaves, for the most part, viewed them as biological machinery. They were only there to get the crops out of the fields, to be used as, you know, as soon as better technology would come along, they would need them less. In first century Rome, slaves were often very, very educated. Uh, in many cases, more educated than their owners. And so it was common to have an owner of a slave who couldn't read, who couldn't write, and who employed a slave to do all of that for them. The Bible gives us an example of a slave in Joseph who was the bookkeeper for his master, Potiphar. He basically ran the household. So many slaves in first century times were educated and they had social mobility. Do you understand what I mean by that? They could walk in the streets. They could go into shops. They could act um, as individuals in a way that African slaves in America just could not. And they also had the option many times to buy their way out of their slavery. And so if they entered into slavery because of financial burdens, they could work their way out of it. And if they were formally freed by their masters who were Roman citizens, so they went through the legal process to actually formally be freed, if their masters were Roman citizens, they received Roman citizenship when they were freed. You get kind of what a big picture that is? And so they had social mobility. They had options in life as slaves that African slaves in America never had. So we're starting to see a picture of what slavery was. It was real slavery, but if we have in our mind the picture of American slavery, it won't be accurate. And I also want to point out that the first century church's view of slavery was informed by scripture, the Old Testament talks about slavery and it's not even the same picture of slavery that Rome had as a nation. In Rome, there were slaves who had been stolen by pirates off of ships, um, slaves that were won through war, slaves that were taken out of their homes by force. Whereas if you look to the scripture, the the, the standard 
picture of slavery in the Old Testament was a Jewish man who could no longer support himself. He could no longer feed himself or support his family. And he would willingly enter into slavery as a way to not die of starvation. Like that was the picture. And built into the law, you can read this in Exodus 21, um, God commanded the Israelites that if a man willingly entered into slavery, that every seven years, in what was called the year of Jubilee, he was to be freed without any payment. Because he was a slave temporarily because of his situation, not because of his value. Do you get... Do you get the idea here? Whereas people who were stolen from other countries by the Romans and used as slaves were viewed as less valuable, God made it clear from the beginning that this nation of slaves that had been brought out of Egypt would never use the institution of slavery in the way that it had been used against them. And so it was temporary, and it was to provide protection when a man became a slave of another man in Israel, he entered into that man's household in a relationship that was much more familial than we would see even in the Roman world. And just to drive this home, I want to acknowledge that there have been Christians, especially in the American South, before the Civil War, who, who defended American slavery based on passages like this the one we're about to dig into more. There were men who stood up in the pulpits and screamed and pounded and, and got red in the face defending their right to own and abuse people. People that had been stolen out of their own land. And that was evil. I'm going to put a, a verse on the board. This is from Exodus 21. This is the word of the Lord to the Jewish people as they were forming their nation. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Do you guys get the image here? God so hates this that he said if you have someone who goes out and who steals someone to make them a slave, this is what happened in the African slave trade. That that man and anyone who bought that slave should be killed. Now I'm not, I'm not advocating that we go around killing people but I want you to understand that as God set up the nation of Israel and as he poured out his heart to his people, he made it clear, he made it clear that the type of slavery that we had in America and that has wounded us so deeply that we still feel it today, he made it clear that that was evil. It's never to be defended it's to be repented of and rebuked and hated. The preachers who stood up 
in the pulpit and who preached that it was okay if they had lived in the time of Israel would have come under this law. So there we set up the idea of slavery and the picture that we should have of what it was in Roman times. And so now we come to our passage and we go into to look at what God had to say to these people. Let's start in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. As God gives direction to his people in this time, many of whom were slaves in Roman households, he doesn't command them to rebel. He doesn't command them to rise up in violence. He commands them to obey. Now we know what God thinks of slavery from what we've just read but we see this astonishing thing. Slavery in the Old Testament always happened, at least in in the places where it was God-ordained in some way, as a result of harsh economic times. And it was temporary, and it wasn't seen as a good thing. It was seen as a measure to protect the lives of people. In Rome, that was not the case. There was no year of jubilee for the Christians who would hear this command. And yet he says, obey your earthly masters. And he says to do so with fear and with trembling. They were to be obedient, not out of anxiety, but out of concern. Their work as slaves had had importance to it. It mattered. They were to take it seriously. And they were to do it with a sincere heart. That means that these, these slaves who were not empowered over their own life or their own decisions were told by God, to work with sincerity, not fake. Like that, that couldn't be easy. You're not viewed as a fully valuable person, in many cases by your master. And here Christ is telling you to work just as you would for him. You see the high calling here? Obey with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And so the first century Christian slave was to look at his slavery and was not commanded to kick or rebel, but was commanded to love and work diligently and to honor God through how he worked. And so he establishes the expectation for slaves in this first verse. And then he strengthens the image that he's building 
in verse 6. He says, do this, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do you guys get the image of eye service? He said, slaves, don't work, don't act in a way that just makes you look good to your masters. Any of you ever do some work around the house or at your job and it looks okay? But if I were to like poke you for how hard you did it or how diligent you were to check your work, you might say, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I didn't do that well. The idea here was that slaves were to do their work fully, not just to where it looked good on the outside, but where it was good. They couldn't be expedient in the way that they handled their duties. They couldn't just say, oh, this is good enough. And they were in no position to posture. I'm the good slave. Look at all the work I do. They weren't to act as people pleasers. Do you get this? So God commands them to work, but not because they're trying to make their masters think well of them. They were to work and be concerned of their work because they weren't just slaves of their masters, their earthly masters. You see this in the middle? As bond servants of Christ, it is as slaves of Christ. They're not just slaves of earthly masters. They're slaves of a heavenly master, Christ. And it says, doing the will of God from the heart. Again, there's just repetition of what we read in the last verse. They were to believe it deep down, that their work, the things that they did, was not just to be about them. It was to be about honoring God, pleasing him. And then we see an outcome in verse 7. Again, there's repetition. It says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not man. We've seen that exact same concept in the last two verses. But then Paul adds on in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or is free. There's this idea in this verse that those who would work diligently as if they were working for Christ, even if they saw no rewards in their present day, even if they never tasted physical freedom in their lifetime, that there would be rewards from God that God would see their heart, he would see their desires, he would see their spiritual condition, and they would receive something from him that no one else could give. The slave who was a Christian, even if he was treated unfairly by his earthly master, could be sure that God, his Father in heaven, didn't see him as lowly 
that he would be adopted just as every other Christian was adopted. That he had equal standing with every other Christian. There will be no slaves in heaven. No divided classes in heaven. The haves and the have-nots will just be haves in heaven. And then there's a turn. A turn away from the slaves who are given a very hard command in light of what they knew of their position before Christ. There's a turn towards the masters who receive a command. Read this in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I want to take a moment to point out that the relationship we see in this passage is different than the other two that we looked at. Do you guys remember the other two relationships that we've looked at the last several weeks? We saw husbands and wives. We saw children and their parents. And now we're seeing slaves and their masters. Notice that in the first relationship, Paul roots the hierarchy of the relationship between husbands and wives in the relationship between Christ and the church. Do you remember that? And then between children and parents, Paul appeals to the Old Testament Ten Commandments. He says, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. And so we see Paul again rooting that relationship in something that God had previously said. There were hierarchy in both of those situations, and they were ordained by God. Notice the difference here. The hierarchy between an earthly master and his earthly slave is acknowledged as existing in the world, but there is no appeal to God's character to defend it as something that should be inherent. Do you see that? What's the relationship that's appealed to here? It's the relationship between the slaves and God. Masters and God. And then at the end, Paul says to masters, there is no partiality. There's none. When God looks at you and looks at your slave, it is an even playing field. The situation could be easily reversed. Slaves are not inherently unvaluable. Masters are not inherently superior. There's no hierarchy here that is natural. Do you see that? The natural state in this relationship is even. And so Paul says to the masters this crazy statement, if you were a Roman at the time, do the same to them. Do you remember how we talked about the Roman Senate debating about, about maybe the slaves wearing different clothes? 
so that they would know not to treat them the same way in public. Paul tells his masters that the attitude that slaves have towards them should be the same attitudes that they display towards their slaves. And you might say that kind of breaks the slave-master relationship, doesn't it? To which I would respond, yes. Yes, it does. If the slave-master relationship is built on the idea that masters are superior, then God's command to masters, that they are to look at their slaves with the same eyes that he commands the slaves to look at the masters, then it does break slavery as the first century church knew it. It certainly breaks slavery as the American South knew it. Christian masters were to look at their slaves as brothers. Even if they were in an economic situation where these men and women were in their households and worked for them, they were not to see them as property. They were to see them as fellow heirs with God. If I had the time, I would take us over um, to the book of Philemon where we have Paul sending a letter to a slave owner about his runaway slave, and they're both Christians. And he basically says to the man, you know, I know I'm just an apostle of God and all, but maybe, maybe, maybe if I were you, I would think about receiving this man back not as a runaway slave, but as a brother in Christ. The attitudes that we see displayed in this command to masters breaks slavery as the first century world knew it. And so he says, stop your threatening. It was common for slaves in that age um, to receive the threat that their families would be broken up if they didn't obey. Paul says, none of that. Sexual abuse was not to be held over as an option for slaves for disobedience. There would be none of that. They were to treat them as brothers, recognizing that in heaven, they stood on equal ground. So we've talked about slavery in the first century. We've talked about God's response to slavery in the first century. And now let's talk about today. Let's talk about application today. We can look at these verses and say, well, what do we do now? What do we do with it? The first thing that I want to say is that overt, real slavery still exists in the world. Do you think that the women who stand, and I say women as a stereotype, but they're men and young boys and girls too, who stand on the sides of the roads and who walk through the hallways of hotel rooms at large sporting events in our country, do you think that they are free? That they are choosing the life that they've chosen? Slavery is still real in our world today 
There are men, women, girls, and boys who have been stolen. And if this were ancient Israel and I were the king, God would have told me to kill them. I'm not saying that we should go out and get involved in vigilante justice. Um, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. But friends, if we are going to be politically involved at all in the world today, can we not push with everything we have, with every opportunity we have, to call for those that rule over us, whether we voted for them or not, to press in on this issue, to not not allow it in this country to go on unmet. I have watched documentaries of policemen driving in their cars, pointing to people that they know and that they've talked to, that they know are in slavery, but they feel like there's nothing they can do. I don't know what the answer is to to that overt slavery in our world, but I do know that if we just pretend like it's not there, that there are going to be children and men and women whose lives are so darkly destroyed that how could anyone fault them for questioning whether God was real? God hates what's happening to them. How can we who say we love God pretend it doesn't exist? So the first application to this passage is get involved. Do a Google search on American sex trafficking. There are organizations out there that that desperately, desperately um, want to help. There's a little door right outside the room here that says Missouri Baptist Children's Home. Come and knock on it because they'll tell you how to get involved. I also want to acknowledge that there's another way to apply these verses. While slavery, in the sense that a man can own another man, has been abolished in our country... There are economic realities in the world that have caused something like slavery to rise up, both here and abroad. Men and women who are not called slaves, but are so economically dependent upon large, wealthy organizations and people, that they feel they have no choices. Our current economy is structured around service and labor. What that means is that most of us will not have a cottage industry. 
Most of us will not be small business owners or contractors. Most of us will work for someone else who controls our livelihood. Most of us, whenever we go in to try to get a job, will not be in the position where we can bargain strongly for ourselves. You understand what I'm saying here? Whenever you need to put food on your table, you don't assert yourself too hard when you're talking to the hiring manager at Walmart. Because you've got to feed your family. And there are many of us who find ourselves in jobs under men and women where we are completely disempowered and we feel like we don't have a choice but to do what we're doing. I didn't hear any amens, so apparently all y'all are doing better than me. <laughs> it's really easy to look at our bosses and to look at the corporations that pay our bills and to shake our fists. And what I would say to those of us who live by the wages we receive to have a similar outlook that the Christian slaves in the first century did. The work that we do, sitting in our cubicle, or mowing a lawn, or working on pipes, scanning things at a register, may seem meaningless, but we can't just phone it in. If God commanded slaves to do their work diligently in spite of their position, don't you think that maybe, just maybe, he wants the rest of us to do our jobs well? Like we're maybe working not just for a man who cuts a check, but for a God who loves us? I've sat in meetings that are like little pep rallies for the business, right? I used to work for Scholastic. I don't know if any of you ever have worked for Scholastic, but if there's a conglomerate, right, that has control over large amounts of people in here and up in Moberly, like Scholastic is one of them. And I remember sitting in these little pep meetings where they like tried to get us excited about working full for Scholastic before I got on the phone and talked to people who were mad about the accounts that they felt like they got swindled into, felt like they got swindled into. And I remember sitting in those meetings thinking, I hate this. <laughs> and it was so hard to pick up the phone and to put forward any amount of effort. Um, they had a three strikes, you're out system. If you didn't make enough sales for the for the phone call I was on. I was two strikes, and I had a review coming up in about a week, and so I got another job. <laughs> I, begged, I begged one of my teachers to let me be a tutor at the college. I said, please, I need to feed my family. Um, as I look back on the attitude that I had in that job, it was not great. I didn't like it. I disagreed with some of the policies. But 
the attitude that I had towards my bosses and the people who were willing to give me a paycheck was not good. And if I compare it to the attitude that God calls us to have as workers, has he called slaves to have in their state? It's not bad to look for another job. We should praise God we have the freedom to do so in this country. But while we're in the jobs that we have, we should do our best. Not to act in evil ways or in unethical ways, but we should do our best to serve those around us. You got any bosses in the room? Anybody here a manager or a supervisor? You got one of them. Got at least one. Well, those of you who aren't, maybe someday will be. Bosses, um, you are in a privileged position. And uh, you're going to be held accountable for God, by God for how you treat those under you. For those of you who find yourselves eventually in a managerial spot, you will be handled, you will be, you will be held accountable by God for how you treat your employees. Will you view them as valuable and worthy? Or will you treat them as expendable? You guys would pray with me. Um, Lord, we admit the difficulty of coming to passages like this. Um, to be completely honest, Lord, we don't understand we don't understand why the evils that we've seen in this world had to exist. We know we know that it's the cause of sin. We know that sin has so deeply infected humankind that it's, it's like we can't help but, but use and abuse and oppress one another. But Lord, we admit that we just kind of stand silent before it all because the problems seem big. They seem insurmountable. And so we just cry out to you to show us mercy and grace. Lord, the men and women and children that are being abused around the world right now, God, we just, we plead with you to do something for them, to send us, to send others, to use the, the authorities that be in various countries to make real significant change. And Lord, we ask that you would not only work there, but you would work in our own hearts. Help us, help us to do everything that we need to do as if we're serving you and not just men. Give us hearts to view each other with fairness, with honesty, and with grace. Lord, unless you change our hearts, unless you change the hearts of those around the world, we are lost and without hope. And so we just put ourselves in your hands and we trust you. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.